Welcome to a special America's Constitution road trip edition. They were coming from sunny Florida with a live audience of enthusiastic Yale alumni. And this is the beginning of season two of America's Constitution. So, you know, the pandemic has caused all of us to uh, find new ways to get things done that need getting done. And Professor Amar has had to invent the pandemic book tour. Um, you know, and so his latest book, uh, The Words That Made Us, was published in May 2021, and it received rave reviews far and wide, uh, but the tradition of the book tour has largely been, largely been relegated to a variety of Zooms. Um, so on the podcast, we've tried to help out with some episodes that have addressed some themes from the book, but today we're on site with an audience, with book in hand, or soon to be book in hand, and we thought we'd treat everyone to an author's hour. Um, so today we're going to whet your appetite for 800 pages of Akil by giving you 80 years of American history, of America's constitutional conversation in 40 minutes. And following that, we're going to, uh, look, we're going to take your questions, um, and you can ask about anything, about, you know, about the Constitution, about the words that made us specifically, or even about Yale. We actually had an episode last year on Yale's Constitution, um, which was uh, sort of up for grabs, as uh, some of you may know. Um, so, uh, again, think about questions that occur to you during the, uh, the, the discussion here about the book, and then we'll, we'll have a lot of time for those questions. So, hello, Akil. Uh, hey, Andy. Um, so, do I get to say it? You get to say it. Uh, live from Florida, it's Tuesday night. <laughs> <laughs> okay, go for it, Andy. Okay, so we're going we're gonna to do a whirlwind tour of the words that made us, and I want you to learn at least three things from each chapter, if you can, as we go through it. So in the first chapter, which is called Seeds, um, it seems to me that one of the themes there was the question of when did the American Revolution uh, begin or when were the seeds planted for the American Revolution? Right, and the standard story that most of us were taught, that I was taught at Yale College um, by the great historians of the era, um, most preeminently uh, Ed Morgan. I don't know if any of you had Professor Morgan. Some people are raising their hands. I, I had him too. I arrived at Yale College, um, sight unseen, on my 18th birthday, uh, September 6, 1976, and um, I get assigned to read Ed Morgan's textbook, The National Experience. It's the Yale textbook. And the standard story is really that the, um, the origins of the revolution that in the standard periodization would begin in 1763, 64, 65. There's the end of what the rest of the world calls the Seven Years' War, what we in America call the French and Indian War. Um, and it leads to, um, and it was very expensive, uh, and the Brits um, had massive debt, and they were looking to, to um, uh, pay those debts, and they had to defend America in various ways, and so they thought it was only fair to, that Americans should be taxed. Um, and they started to impose taxes, the Sugar Act in 1764, and very famously, the Stamp Act in 1765. So almost every book that you will ever see um, about the American Revolution. If it has dates in the subtitle, it'll be 1763 to 1776 or something like that. Chapter one of my book tells a different story. It's called Seeds. 
um, which is a quote from a fellow named John Adams. And he said, and, and I was very skeptical at first, but he's right, the seeds can be seen as early as 1760, 61. They're in Boston before the war has even ended. The Americans are beginning to itch and agitate. Um, so the first thing um, from the very beginning is um, I tell the story um, in a different way. It starts earlier, uh, and it starts basically with the fall of Montreal. And as soon as Montreal falls, Quebec falls, um, uh, the, the, the French strongholds um, uh, north of America, it becomes pretty clear that the Brits are going to win that war, and now the Americans don't need the Brits anymore, <laughs> truthfully, because the, the French are vanquished. Um, and as soon as they see that, they begin to itch and agitate. You know, it's like a 17-year-old who wants the keys to the car, okay, because you know, he doesn't, doesn't need you anymore. Um, and that's part of the story of chapter one. So the difference there between starting in 1760 and 1763 is more than a question of numbers, isn't it? I mean, in other words, the standard story, I think, also includes the notion that the Brits are misbehaving, and that's why the Americans are getting agitated. And by 1776, oh, there's going to be misbehavior aplenty, and that's going to be chapter two and chapter three. But in 1760, actually, the Brits haven't really begun to misbehave yet, and the Americans are still in Boston um, um, itching to, to, to be on their own. Um, and uh, um, another way of saying this is... If I just went up to you, and this is a very well-educated audience, and I said, when, did the first, when and where did the First World War start? You would say it started in the Balkans in 1914, in Sarajevo, with the killing of an Austrian archduke. Not really. It started not in the European Balkans, but in America's back country. It started not in 1914, but in 1754. Um, it started with a killing, yes, but not of an Austrian archduke, but a, a, a Canadian um, diplomat um, who uh, was killed in a confrontation with a backwoods, a, a, a backcountry uh, young Virginia um, officer named George Washington. Uh, and that's going to set off the world's first genuinely global conflict, the real first World War, by which I mean you've got all the great powers of the world, the two greatest powers of the world um, um, uh, clashing with each other, um, France and, and Britain eventually. Um, most of the other great powers of the world get sucked in. You're going to have simultaneous conflict um, uh, um, in uh, both uh, uh, old world and new world on land and on sea, um, and at sea, and it's going to result in a massive redrawing of the world map. That's what a world war is. And the first real world war begins because um, uh, of a, a little skirmish um, not too far from Pittsburgh involving, a, I think he was in his 22-year-old, 20, um, I think, uh, George Washington. Um, uh, so that's a different story than what some of us uh, have been taught. And that war is going to eventually, as I say, lead to the fall of uh, Montreal and Quebec. And as soon as that happens, the people in, the Boston, in Boston begin to think, oh, there are possibilities here. And speaking of Boston, um, there are some interesting characters in Boston. And actually, you know, one, one difference in this book from your earlier books is that this book is a narrative history, and there are persons that are characters. You wrote a biography of the Constitution. 
Um, and while some might say there's a living constitution, it's not quite a human character. But here, there are some fascinating characters in this book, and there are at least two of them that take the stage right from the beginning. Yeah, um, I mentioned John Adams because he's the one who actually, 50 years later, said then and there in the Boston courthouse in 1761, then and there the seeds of American uh, heroes and patriots uh, were sown. Then and there the American Revolution began. But he's a 25-year-old um, obscure uh, lawyer just taking notes, scribbling. Um, but he's taking notes in a court case in Boston, um, and there are two other characters um, that I introduce from the beginning, and they're going to be among the dominant characters in the American Revolution. And I majored in history at Yale College, and I didn't know actually who these guys were, really. Um, so one is named James Otis. He's the lawyer for the Patriot cause. He's uh, criticizing certain um, search and seizure policies that the, that the Brits have in place. It's a case involving a thing called writs of assistance. He's the one who coins the phrase taxation without, who's going to later coin the phrase taxation without representation is tyranny. He writes the first major pamphlet against the Brits in 1764. He's the driving force behind what becomes a thing called the Stamp Act Congress in 1765 when for the first time ever people from um, uh, ma various mainland colonies um, uh, get together and actually form united resistance to Britain. Um, but I'm going to do a show of hands here. And, um, and uh, uh, um, how many of you had ever heard of James Otis? Because I can't raise my hand, okay? There are four or five people who did, okay? Um, and um, now I'm going to ask another question. There's one other character that I introduce in this chapter. He's America's preeminent Loyalist. You see, because actually there were Americans who sided with George III um, when the, um, the, the fighting uh, starts. Um, and we don't know them. Um, and they had ideas too. They had a story too. And, and many of them were good and decent people. They just were on the, the losing side of the struggle. So if I asked you who, is, who are America's preeminent loyalists, probably the only one that most people would even be able to identify is Benedict Arnold. Okay, America, and, and some of you might say, oh, I, I heard that uh, Ben Franklin had an illegitimate son named William, and he actually um, um, was a, uh, a royally appointed governor, and he ends up um, being loyal to the crown, and, and that's true. Can any of you name actually any other, you know, prominent American loyalist? Um, we have a, Townsend. Um, Townsend was a Brit. Uh, Charles Townsend, the Townsend Acts, actually. So he, he, he's not a, an American-born loyalist. He's a, he's a brick guy. The Townsend duties are very important. They're, they're going to be a, they're a big part of my, my chapter, too. The guy's name, um, and he, he really is a very significant figure, um, uh, and, uh, uh, and I didn't know anything about him. Uh, he, he, he's going to, as I said, be the most important American-born loyalist. His name, Thomas Hutchinson. And, um, and if he were alive today, he loved his hometown. He also loved his king. He's Boston-born. He's not so different from Ben Franklin until very late in the game. If you would ask me, you know, who in the end of the day is going to side with the Brits and who's going to actually rebel against the king, you know, I might have said, oh, Benjamin Franklin's going to side with the Brits and, and Thomas Hutchinson's going to stick with his, his townies. But um, so... Um, he's a good and decent person. He's brave. He's honest. Um, he's um, uh, pious and tolerant, um, which is a powerful combination, you know, to be a believer, but also to respect others who have different beliefs. You know, um, hardworking. Um, um, if he were alive today, 
because um, because he's the loser in some ways of 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 the story. Um, but in chapter one, he's actually I think on the right side of the law. He's a judge in this case. He'd basically be today. He, he's a bit of a traditionalist. He's he's um, a, um, a, a very impressive business person. He's basically Mitt Romney, who is a good and decent person, you know, but you know, a, a conservative traditionalist. Um, and none of you actually knows Thomas Hutchinson, but by the end of chapter one, you'll have a little bit of a sense of him. And by the end of chapter two, you'll have a really good sense of him. And his is a poignant story. Okay, so as you can see, we get going in chapter one with a vengeance. Chapter two is called Resistance. Um, and does it identify the point at which the revolution becomes uh, inevitable? Yeah, historians always debate these questions. You know, uh, when do you pass the point of no return? Could things have been otherwise? Um, in my version of the story, um, the key is a thing called the coercive acts in 1774. But let me take a step back and tell you what else is in this chapter. Okay, so um, in chapter one, I've got in, the, in a room for the first time ever, John Adams, James Otis, and Thomas Hutchinson. Wow, because they're going to be three of the dominant figures of, of the next 15 years. Um, Adams is going to end up being one of the six great men of the American Revolution, along with George Washington, and Thomas Jefferson, and James Madison, and Ben Franklin, and Alexander Hamilton. That's kind of by, by consensus. He's in the room, but he's a 25-year-old scribbling notes. I got this great rabble-rousing orator lawyer. He's Boston's answer to Patrick Henry. His name is James Otis, but you've heard a lot more about Patrick Henry, and you've heard about James um, Otis. Um, Otis ends up actually um, um, losing his mind. Um, um, he actually has all sorts of interesting things in common with King George, in, in, in fact. Um, uh, and, um, and I've got Hutchinson. So that's my chapter one. So um, chapter two carries the story forward. So um, you've heard about the Stamp Act crisis. And indeed, our teacher, Ed Morgan, wrote all about the Stamp Act crisis. He actually wrote a book on the Stamp Act crisis. And you've all heard about taxation without representation. And I tell that story. Um, which is a phrase coined by J James Otis. Um, but here, uh, so here's another problem, though, with the Stamp Act. That's, this is 1765. Parliament starts to tax Americans, and they start to push back. They weren't doing that in 1760-61. Parliament wasn't doing that, and yet the Americans are itching um, uh, for, 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 for independence. By um, 1765, Parliament is taxing Americans, and American the colonists, and they're not represented in Parliament, and that doesn't seem fair but here's another thing that you need to understand about the Stamp Act. It's a tax on paper. All sorts of um, documents need to have the stamp. That's a, um, a college diplomas, a will, a contract, a court filing. But you know what else is printed on paper? Newspapers. And they don't like this tax on um, basically their, their biggest um, um, uh, input. Um, they're not actually paying people generally to, to be on staff. They, they basically, their, their main costs are just paper and ink. And the Brits are stupidly imposing a tax on paper. So who's going to push back on that really hard? The newspapers are, do not pick a fight with newspapers. That's actually going to be a bad strategy, you see, for the Crown. So, but, and the Brits eventually back down. And uh, James Otis organizes a united opposition. It's called the Stamp Act Congress. 
Um, um, nine of the colonies are actually represented, and they push back against Britain. It backs down. So the war isn't inevitable in 1760-61. Um, that's chapter one. Yes, George III has just become king, um, and they're going to rebel against him, but they're toasting him generally in Boston in 1760-61. That's how my, my book begins, actually, with people toasting the new king, hailing him. It's not inevitable, even though the seeds are there with the benefit of hindsight. It's not inevitable in 1765 with the Stamp Act, the Brits back down. The newspapers actually um, uh, agitate, and the Brits back down. Um, but then, oh, there's a, uh, there's a riot, massive riot, and, and um, Hutchinson's house is basically destroyed. Um, the Americans' patriots are out of control at that moment, and, and they're embarrassed later by the insurrection. I mean, by the, 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 um, uh, um, uh, the uh, Stamp Act riot, as it's called. And they end up, actually, the patriots do, paying for all the damage done to Hutchinson's um, mansion because what, it, he didn't deserve any of that. Um, um, and so there's conflict, but um, the side is, but war is not inevitable then. But then a few years later, the Brits keep misbehaving. They have a thing called the Townsend Act. Someone mentioned Townsend, and um, so new taxes. America's pushed back. Um, the Brits basically abandon all the new taxes. So the war isn't inevitable. 1767, 68, 69. Oh, there's a Boston, so-called Boston Massacre. A few people are killed, but it wasn't intentional. So it's not inevitable then. Ah, the Brits repeal the tax, fine, but they keep a tax on tea. They actually lower it, and the colonists are outraged. Why would they be outraged by low taxes? Because the Brits were trying to establish the precedent that taxes were okay. So if they lower the tax, people will pay it, and then the Brits can say, ah, you've consented to that, and then we can raise it later. Okay, so the Americans are outraged, and this guy named Sam Adams stage is a thing that we call the Boston Tea Party. That's in 1773. It's this amazing kind of um, a political performance art, um, and the Brits massively overreact. And that overreaction, which is called the course of acts, try to, they shut, try to shut down the town of Boston. They abrogate the, the, the Massachusetts Charter. They send more troops into a city, um, onto the a, a, a city streets. And that's when the war basically becomes inevitable because this brilliant uh, um, proto-MLK, proto-Gandhi-like uh, character actually stages this utterly peaceful um, protest, non-violent um, um, 342 chests of tea are, are dumped into the harbor, but there's not the kind of looting and, and lawlessness that was true in the Stamp Act riot of, of 1765. Um, they even sweep the decks. Um, they, they broke one um, padlock by accident and they replaced the padlock. They're, they're so disciplined. They're just trying to make a point. Um, and the Brits massively overreact. And in the middle of the whole thing, is a fellow named Thomas Hutchinson, whose actually sons were the people who were um, um, uh, were the uh, consignees the, the, uh, of the tea, the people who were going to sell the tea um, to, to the Bostonians. So Hutchinson is like the Zelig-like character. He's, he's popping up everywhere. He's everywhere. He, he, he's governor, he's judge, he's, you know, you name uh, it. Lieutenant governor. There's this thing called the Hutchinson Letters Affair, which I bet none of you have ever heard of before, but it's the moment when Ben Franklin ceases to become a loyal Brit um, and actually joins the American cause, and it's all about leaked emails. I mean, um, leaked um, uh, le letters. Um, were they stolen or not? We still don't know. It's a fascinating story, but once again, 
you're already beginning to see this is a book about discourse, about letters, about conversation, about pamphlets, about newspapers, about a, a, a legal and political debate um, with very sophisticated um, um, people taking positions on each side. You will see in, in the book basically Twitter avant la lettre and, 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 the, and early what will later become Facebook and, and the internet. You, you'll see actually all sorts of people, ordinary people, jumping into public discourse, um, um, reading and writing things in, in, in newspapers that are, are uh, crossing the Atlantic and, and going up and down the eastern seaboard. The Americans are starting to talk to each other, talk to the Brits, um, create actually a system of public discourse, constitutional discourse. And so now we've actually entered into chapter three on independence when we start talking about Franklin and so forth. And I think that, you know, one of the things that's true in the book is that we can, we can mention these topics, that like, for example, the tale of two mobs that you were just talking about with the difference between the Hutchinson um, mob and then the Boston Tea Party. But to read in the detail, the detailed analysis of it really gives you a, a perspective we don't have time to get into here, but hopefully we're whetting your appetite. So in Chapter 3, you mentioned Franklin's moment of turning from loyalist to revolutionary. Um, speaking of... Twitter and, and, and social media, he also has really the first viral meme for us, doesn't he? The world's first global you know, viral meme, yes. He, he creates, I mean, he's such an amazing person, and Andy is a retired ophthalmologist, so of course he's going to remind us of the bifocal. Um, there's the Franklin stove, which is actually all about a less polluting way of keeping warm you know, on, on climate change. Um, there's um, the lightning rod, um, which prevents uh, you know, all um, fires from uh, devastating um, uh, uh, um, inhabited places. Um, he um, is the founder of the world's first, uh, or at least America's first, genuinely secular institution of higher learning, because um, Yale isn't that, but the University of Pennsylvania is. Um, so, you know, he, he's just an amazing figure. And uh, uh, as speaking of Yale, I'm, I'm really grateful that um, there's a residential college um, at Yale named for him. Thanks to someone from this part of the world, a, a Yale graduate named Charlie Johnson. So, so thank you, Charlie, for that. We are very grateful for that. So, so Ben Franklin um, uh, is, um, yes, this uh, I important figure um, uh, in um, uh, the chapter, he is a product of a democratic culture, um, and so among and he's a newspaper man. They're all newspaper men, actually. In fact, um, um, uh, uh, Adams is a newspaper pamphleteer, and so is Jefferson, and so is Hamilton. Of course, we call that the Federalist Papers, uh, uh, Publius, um, Madison too. Um, Washington doesn't write for newspapers, but he reads more newspapers than anyone around. George III doesn't read newspapers, and he's not listening to America, and he loses. And, and George Washington does read newspapers. Okay, so, but here's the other amazing thing about the greatness of Franklin. So he creates the world's first political cartoon. You've probably all seen it, but you didn't know the significance of it. It's called Join or Die. It's a snake divided up in various parts. That's from 1754. That's all about Washington and the back country and the run-up to the French and Indian War. Um, that's what, what, it's all about the, the, the First World War beginning. And Franklin and Washington is there in the back country when the shots are fired. Um, the person who's killed is a man named Jumonville. 
Um, and, and Franklin is there in Philadelphia, um, um, basically urging all the colonists to actually work together because otherwise the French are going to slice them apart. It's called Join or Die. It's the world's first viral meme. Um, it go, and, 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 um, and it gets revived in 1765 with the Stamp Act Congress. It gets revived again after the coercive acts in 1774. So um, three words, join or die, a simple woodcut, and he's making a very sophisticated political argument that people on both sides of the Atlantic and all up and down the, uh, the, uh, the American seaboard are, are engaging. Three words and a picture, easy to copy. It's copied by newspapers everywhere because he understands actually it's a democratic culture. It's, it's really, it's quite extraordinary. And Andy will confirm today, um, I have all sorts of snake pictures because uh, in the thing, and, and I hate reptiles. <laughs> so, so we went today to a wetland and um, my wife actually can tell you she, she, she uh, took a video of an 11 foot gator and um, I ran away shrieking. <laughs> so, so I don't, you know, I'm, 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 I'm scared of reptiles, but you will see some really cool snake cartoons in the book, Join or Die. And of course, you're making a point about newspapers and the importance of newspapers at that time as well. And that's something that, you know, the subtitle of the book, America's Constitutional Conversation, and that's certainly part of it, um, is the, this notion that newspapers um, were, were extremely important. So let's talk, since we talked about Franklin, let's talk about Jefferson and the Declaration. It's, does, it's short, so it can be reprinted start to finish in newspapers. It's designed for a democratic culture. Um, I know we're getting a little bit ahead of, of ourselves, but the next chapter, chapter four, state constitutions that emerge after the revolution, they're all short, they're all printed start to finish in newspapers. The federal constitution in 1787 is a short document. I, you can I can carry it around with me because, um, oh, no, you know, it's just my checkbook, but, but yeah, I'm pulling <laughs> it uh, here. It's, it's short so that ordinary people can read the thing, you see. Um, so, and that's because America is a place where there's massive literacy, um, more newspaper readership per capita than anywhere else in the world. Um, and um, so the Declaration is designed for newspapers, and, and Franklin, of course, is a newspaper man, and his cartoon is designed for newspaper readers. These are all part of, ultimately, an extraordinary democratic constitutional culture, which today is, also, is, is very participatory. Everyone can jump in with Twitter or Facebook or TikTok or Instagram or Zoom, uh, what have you. And of course, you know, so we're kind Email. of at the, ch in chapter four, at sort of the point of the revolution. Um, oh, let me say one other thing, Andy, just about chapter three. I know we have to, a lot of chapters to go through. Um, so chapter three also introduces another character. Um, there are not so many women in the book because they actually are not as prominent um, at that time. There are going to be a couple of other volumes. Volume two, the women are going to um, come to the surface. It's going to be um, the, the suffragettes in a, in a, in a later era. Um, this book, remember, 1760 to 1840, but I do tell the story of Abigail Adams and the famous letter that she writes to John Adams reminding him to remember the ladies. Because um, uh, who, who are the people, the famous um, committee that basically drafted the declaration. Well, John Adams is on it, and so is Thomas Jefferson, and so is Ben Franklin. They're three of the, the five. The, the five come from all up and down the co uh, continent, sort of the snake. You have, it has to be united. You need you know, some New Englanders. You need some Mid-Atlantic folks. You need some Southerners. So, um, so Abigail writes a very famous letter at about this time, the spring of 1776, 
um, admonishing John to, quote, remember the ladies. Um, but many of you, I bet, don't know what she was really actually telling him. Um, she was not arguing for woman suffrage back in 1776. But she actually did have a very specific thing in mind. Maybe in the Q&A, if you're interested, um, someone asked me the question, I'll tell you what Abigail was really uh, demanding of John. And he, he didn't quite get the point because he, he wasn't always the world's greatest listener, it turns out. Um, but chapter four, you were saying, Andy. Yes. So here we have the American Revolution. And okay, so you're an expert on the Constitution. So you might say, well, what came out of the American Revolution? Well, the Constitution. But not really, right? So the Constitution is 1787, but now we're talking about 1776, you know, 11 years earlier. So what's up with that? So what, what's the Declaration really mostly about? It's about new constitutions, Republican constitutions, constitutions coming from the people state by state by state. These are united colonies. They've now become united states, but they're in a confederacy, a league. It's kind of like today the United Nations. So the real action in 1776, the real point of the revolution actually is so that Massachusetts can, can actually be a free and independent state. And Virginia can be a free and independent state. Um, and Pennsylvania can be a free and independent state or commonwealth. They, they're going to need to combine for certain purposes. They have to join or die. Um, because um, geostrategically, actually, they, um, they, they have to hang together. Britain is three times as big as, as America in population, um, and there, so there's no way you're going to be able to defeat the, the mightiest empire in the world, military empire, unless you hang together. Um, so there's going to need to be um, a, an alliance, a, a, a league like NATO or something like that. But in 1776, it's not yet an indivisible continental union. It's, and the real action is state by state by state, these new constitutions. Um, Jefferson's involved in the creation of the, Mass of the Virginia Constitution, and so is, is Madison, for example. Um, in Massachusetts, John Adams is, is, is going to be um, uh, involved. That's going to be a constitution that gets rid of slavery. Um, that prohibits slavery in Massachusetts. And, and John and, and James Otis way back earlier were saying, well, if we want to actually assert our rights against Brits, we you know, need to be fair to the people whose rights we're depriving. Um, we should actually get rid of slavery. Otis is one of the first people to say that. He says that in the 1764 pamphlet. So the action early on is these state constitutions, state by state by state. That's the heart, really, uh, of the American Revolution. And just to repeat, several of them begin to put slavery on a path of extinction, sometimes immediately, sometimes gradual. And that's big news in the world. So Massachusetts will get rid of slavery, and so will New Hampshire, and, and, and so will Pennsylvania, although on a, on a gradual path, and, um, and, and, and several other states. Slavery has always existed in the world. Um, in most societies, in, in most, um, uh, um, almost everywhere in, uh, in the history of the world, um, almost every regime has had some forms of, of unfreedom. So that's not new in the world. What's new in the world, and the idea of freeing slaves is not a new idea. If you are inclined toward the biblical, you know, you might think of Ben-Hur or something like that in which Charlton Heston is free. And it's written by Lew Wallace, who was a Civil War general, the, the novel Ben-Hur. If your tastes inclined toward the comedic, um, Sondheim just passed away, you know, think about a funny thing happened on the way to the forum. Um, and the Zero Mostel character, who's a slave conniving to free himself. So, so you know, the world had slavery everywhere. 
um, forms of unfreedom. And the idea of freeing individual slaves was not like a new idea in the world. Here's the new idea with the American Revolution and early state constitutions. Not freeing slaves, but ending slavery as, an, as a system. Abolition, not emancipation or manumission, abolition. That's a new idea in the world, and the world's first abolition society is formed in Pennsylvania in 1775. It's going to lead to the Pennsylvania Constitution of 1780. Later presidents of this abolition society are people named Ben Franklin and Benjamin Rush, both of whom signed the Declaration of Independence. We're not going to get into this debate at this point in, in any detail. But, but that was a little bit of a 1619. Is, yeah, this is a little bit relevant dead. to those who might say that, uh, that the American Revolution was fought to protect slavery. Yeah, the Brits were not good on slavery. They were worse than the Americans. No one's perfect, but we were better than the Brits. Still are, I believe. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so now, now we've gone through the Articles of Confederation. We're in Chapter 5. Titled America. Right. Oh, the state, uh, chapter four also talks about the Articles of Confederation as well as yes, the state constitution. Yes, we don't have time right. because you talk too much yes. about the other yes. stuff. Okay. <laughs> so, so now we now we've got the Constitution. Yes. And the father of the Constitution, James Madison. No. No. That's what you were all taught. Um, James, the father of the Constitution is obviously and overwhelmingly, when you actually look at it, George Washington. He's the guy that gets everything that he wants. Um, the key thing about the... Con- and no one's ever heard of Jimmy Madison um, when the Philadelphia Convention meets. Okay, why do you need a constitution? Because actually the system is failing. There's, um, um, uh, the- we won the last war, but it was a triple bank shot. You know, the French showed up j- at just the right time. Um, but you can't count on that happening again. Okay, words to live by. Do not count on the French. <laughs> Never... <laughs> count on the French. That's fine. You know, they're, they're, they're you know, but, they, you know, but they don't, they, they love the French and, you know, and they're entitled to, you know, and we Americans love America and, and we're entitled to. Um, and so you were, we were lucky to beat the Brits. It was only with massive help from the French. There are two French for every American at Yorktown. Uh, land and sea, okay? So the American Revolution is another world war. It's, not, um, it's uh, the, the War for American Independence is part of another world war, which is a continuation of the Seven Years' War, the French and Indian War. So um, we're going to lose the next war because we haven't paid off the debt for the last one, and people aren't paying. The states aren't paying into the system. So we need a new constitution, a new system, and uh, so the great people, uh, the, the, great, the, the, the greatest figures in America uh, uh, come to Philadelphia to try to come up with a plan. But there, there are basically two or three names only that are known up and down the continent. One would be Ben Franklin, and the other would be George Washington. No one's ever heard of James Madison. And when you look at the federal constitution that emerges, it's basically a version of the state constitutions that were the heart and soul of 1776. There's it, it, a written constitution, bicameral legislature, three branches, legislative, executive, judiciary. That's old hat. That's the Massachusetts constitution. That's the Virginia constitution. Um, that, 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 that's state constitution, New York constitution everywhere. So that's not new. And, and James Madison is not known. He's, he's just a little pipsqueak. Um, but George Washington is known everywhere. He had the only army on the continent. He could have made himself king, and he gives it up um, and, and, and retires to his farm. He's, George III says if, if he gives up his army, he'll be the greatest man in the world, and he did. Um, and, and the moment 
his surrendering his commission to the Confederation Congress um, uh, um, in um, uh, uh, December um, 1783. That's captured, that moment, that amazing moment um, in a great painting by a guy named John Trumbull. And one version of it hangs in the Capitol Rotunda. Another very nice version hangs in the Yale University Art Gallery. So George Washington comes out of retirement to save the country again. He, he's unanimously picked um, head of the Philadelphia Convention. Um, and he gets everything he wants, which is a strong national government so that he can actually protect America with a very strong, dangerously strong presidency. That's the big new thing. That's the thing that's different of the federal constitution compared to the state constitutions, and that is not James Madison's idea. That's George Washington's idea. And he, he's so influential, he doesn't even have to talk at the convention. He presides over it, he smiles, he frowns, um, and, and people just give him what he wants. He talks to people at dinner um, um, afterwards. He gets everything that he wants. He's the key to the ratification. People vote for it, even though they have some doubts about it because they actually trust him. He will unanimously be elected president of the United States. Every single elector will vote for him. He will unanimously be reelected president of the United States. Um, um, he actually says, gee, there's some people who are doubtful about the Constitution. They want a Bill of Rights. We should give it to them. These are not Madison's ideas. These are Washington's ideas. He's obviously and overwhelmingly the father, not just of the country, but the Constitution. And, and yet we don't know, and yet that's not the story you were told. He also attach, writes the, the note that goes along with the Constitution, asking for it to be ratified and making very important points that are relevant to questions of secession and union. Unionism. He's a very, very strong unionist. What would his motto be in three words? If we could bring him back, it would be join or die. He and Ben Franklin are as one on that issue. Okay. So in the next chapter... Um, we get on to questions, uh, further questions about the, the Constitution, like, for example, the question about the Federalist Papers. Right, ratification. ratification. Right, so uh, Chapter 5 is about the draft in the Constitution. It's behind closed doors. You were told it's secret. Here's what you weren't told. It was secret only during the convention itself. The minute the convention ended, January 17th, 1787, um, people started leaking like crazy and, and telling the world who said what, you know, why, all, all the dirt, okay? So um, um, it's not so different than today. You know, there's a caucus. We don't quite know what this trillion dollar or five trillion dollar or whatever uh, plan is, um, but eventually it becomes public, okay? So, so behind closed doors, they come up with a plan um, from May to September, but then actually, here's the amazing thing. You see, the Constitution wasn't adopted by some secret conclave you know, a meeting in Philadelphia, 55 people, 39 of whom will sign their names to the thing at the end. That's just a proposal. It's got to be ratified. So, the rat, and, and I'm saying, and the proposal isn't really even hatched so much by the, the great minds at Philadelphia. They're distilling what's in state constitutions. It's basically just um, taking state constitutions and coming up with least common denominator, best state practices. That's actually what the Philadelphia Convention really is um, when, when you look at it. But now it has to be ratified. We call September 17th Constitution Day because it's the day in 1787 when the Constitution went public, was published um, by publishers in newspapers. You see, they print the thing start to finish. There was freedom of the press even before there was a First Amendment. And the question is, are the American people going to say, yes, we do, or no, we don't? It's put to a special vote up and down the continent. 
And that's the story I tell in chapter six. More people got to vote on that than had ever before been allowed to vote on anything in human history. What we were taught, um, or many of us were taught, is not true. We were taught, oh, the Constitution is this elitist project. It was hatched behind closed doors by a group of people who actually um, violated their instructions. The head of it was a military generalissimo. It was designed by uh, and for the property, the 1%, and, and just um, rammed down uh, people's throats. It was, it was because these elitists thought that the farmers were getting too um, a, um, uh, exuberant with things like Shays, uh, Shays' Rebellion. It, um, the debtors were, uh, were um, agitating too much, and the Constitution was designed to put the lid on all of that populism. That's a standard story. You've heard some version of it, I bet all of you. It's the basic thesis of the most influential book in the 19th, excuse me, the 20th century, written by an Ivy League professor. Um, um, anyone know the book or the, um, uh, the author? The, um, the, ver the pop version today is Howard Zinn, um, but the, the deep intellectual version was a Columbia professor in 1913, wrote a book called An Economic Interpretation of the Constitution, saying the Constitution was of, by, and for the 1%, the, the, the elitist. And his name was Charles Beard. Um, and he was wrong. Um, and uh, so um, yeah, he's a Columbia guy, so he's wrong. <laughs> and... I claim that the most important um, set of books um, in this century on the Constitution are written by a Yale person, you know, and that's what I'm talking about right now, okay? And it wasn't actually, America's Constitution of Biography was in 2005, and this um, follow-up, the words that made us tell a story that it was fundamentally a democratic project, a we the people project. We the people actually voted for the thing. In eight of the 13 states, property qualifications were eliminated or lowered compared to what they were for ordinary elections. Here are the rules in New York on, the, on this vote about whether we're going to have a constitution. All adult free male citizens get to vote. No race tests, no religious tests, no property qualifications, no literacy tests. Those aren't the ordinary rules in New York. Those are special rules for putting the constitution into operation. And Charles Beard knew those facts, and he didn't tell his reader. Um, Ed Morgan actually didn't know these facts until I told him, and he was very interested. He said, well, that's, that's interesting, Akil. Um, so, so it was, um, and, and why did we do it? Not to protect the property, but because actually we had to join or die. Because actually geostrategically, we needed to create a tighter, indivisible confederation. That's not what the Federalist 10 is about. You were all taught that the Federalist 10 is this be-all and end-all, right? If you, that was the Federalist paper. You, no one ever read the Federalist 10 at all until the 20th century when this guy named Charles Beard actually told his readers this is the most important Federalist paper because it's all about protecting minorities, including property minorities. Um, 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 but, but think about it. If you have a good argument for why we should have an indivisible union, the likes of which have continentally, likes of which have never before been seen in human history. Would you wait till your 10th op-ed to make the argument? So I think we need to back up for one second because, the, you know, a lot of people may think that The Federalist is a, is a book. You know, you go buy The Federalist Papers and that people read it as a book. But in fact, the, the, what The Federalist Papers were were a series, as Akil says, of op-eds that in newspapers. In order to convince people to ratify the Constitution. These were arguments for during the year of, of debate before the ratification convention. Part of this conversation, and, and the Federalists are saying, 
say yes. And Madison's first essay is called number 10. And he says, say yes, because actually the federal government will be very respectful of property rights. Okay. So he does say that, but that's not the lead argument. No one reads Federalist 10. No one really repeats the sophisticated arguments of Federalist 10. No one talks about it for the next hundred years. Not until 1913 do people start focusing on Federalist 10, the key argument for union is a Washingtonian argument made by his right hand named Alexander Hamilton, who in effect is saying in the early Federalist Papers, join or die. We have to actually hang together because otherwise we're going to lose the next war. And think about it. Who's really going to understand that? People are going to understand that. The people who are at Valley Forge. The people who are at Yorktown. The people like George Washington and his aide-de-camp, Alexander Hamilton, and not... James Madison, who wasn't there. Thomas Jefferson, who was off in France drinking wine and chasing women. Um, so they don't quite get it the way Washington and Hamilton get it. And, that, and the story that I tell about the ratification is people vote for the thing because they trust George Washington. And the reason that basically they're given to vote yes is join or die. Because um, why? how are the Brits able to beat the French, for example. There are three times as many Brits as there are Americans, but there are three times as many French as there are Brits. So how is it that the Brits were able to, to best the French nation? Partly because they have an indivisible union, the union of Scotland and England, and so they're not fighting each other anymore because before the union of Scotland and England, you know, the Scots are whomping on the British, and uh, the English, excuse me, and the English are whomping back, and Mel Gibson is coming down, and, and, and Mary Queen of Scots is getting involved, and, and, and you're not free when that happens. Here's the argument of the Federalist Papers. We need to get rid of internal borders, we have to be Americans. We have to be united, join or die. And if we um, are united, um, we will be able to, to defeat the ancient powers of the old world who won't be able to come into America and play us off against each other. So George Washington gets that. Americans today need to understand, okay, we might have our differences, um, and we do, but we actually have to hold together um, um, and, and that is the key argument of the Federalist Papers. It's Washington's argument, it's Hamilton's argument, it's Franklin's argument. And of course, you make the point that, uh, the, uh, that, as you've said here, the Constitution is designed by and for George Washington. Now the Constitution is adopted, and George Washington is elected president unanimously. But the Constitution is relatively short, and there's a lot to do in the country. So that you make, you have, you then go into a series of chapters where you show how the Constitution is actually consolidated and implemented. And you go founder by founder. So I think we've talked enough about Washington for now. Um, so let's move on to Hamilton, who's in chapter eight. So now Hamilton, you know, has, is, of course, he's enshrined in many people's memories now because of the, uh, the musical, um, great musical by Lin Manuel Miranda. Um, but there still is a belief that Hamilton uh, was kind of an elitist, that he believed in, in, tax, in, in uh, you know, not taxing people. the rich, right, and so forth. So you go into some things that I think are very important for today that uh, belie that. Yeah. Um, Hamilton is a low-born person, you know, uh, in the musical. How does a bastard, orphan, son of a whore, and the Scotsman, okay? So he's, he's very low-born. This is an only-in-America story. 
In New York, you can be your own man. It's, it's an amazing story of immigrant success. Um, and, and, and he loves America and fights for it, um, even though he's an immigrant. My parents are immigrants, you see. And I earlier said, don't think the Brits are very great. Today is my dad's 93rd birthday. Um, and, and, and he's still around, and I called him this morning. And when he's born, the Brits are pushing the Indians around, just as, like they were pushing the colonists around. And my mom's around, too. You know, uh, just like they, they were pushing the colonists around um, uh, in, in the 1760s. So, so the Brits, truthfully, haven't been great. Um, and, um, and immigrants like my parents, like Alexander Hamilton, you know, I think are a big part of, the, of American greatness. I think seven of the 55 people at Philadelphia actually were, um, seven or eight, um, were actually immigrants, including um, Hamilton. And, and he's not just a spoiled little rich kid. He actually believes that, people, that we need taxes, we, we need taxes um, and an infrastructure, a bank and other things and a currency because there's going to be another war and we have to be ready for it. And he supports actually luxury taxes on the wealthy. Um, and in fact, the single most important Supreme Court case before the John, John Marshall um, is actually a case all about taxation that I had never been taught, uh, really. I, um, and, and almost no constitutional law professor actually talks about, um, but it's front and center in this chapter. It's a case called Hylton, and it's all about a luxury tax on yachts. No, I mean... It, that, um, a luxury tax, I'm, I'm, I'm joking here because we're here in Florida and there are a lot of y y yachts in this area, but it's a tax on carriages, luxury carriages. It's a luxury tax designed by Hamilton and he actually comes out of retirement and defends the, the law which is attacked as unconstitutional by the likes of James Madison and some of his allies and the Supreme Court unanimously backs Hamilton saying this tax is a valid tax and the implications of that case um, reverberate even today. You may hear discussion over the next couple of years about a possible wealth tax. And actually, the arguments of Alexander Hamilton in this case are going to be hugely relevant to whether a wealth tax is or isn't constitutional. Um, so, so I do tell the story. Alexander Hamilton, in the end, thinks you need an army, and you got to pay the army, and they got to have taxes. So the revolution is not... The slogan is not no taxation, period. It's not no taxation, exclamation point. It is no taxation without representation. That's James Otis's idea. Now in the Constitution, you are represented. You get to vote for the House of Representatives, which you didn't get to do on the Article of Confederation. So now that you get to vote for them, they get to tax you. It's taxation with representation. The longest article in the Constitution is Article 1. The longest section, which is about Congress, is Section 8, all the powers of Congress. And it begins, the longest section of the longest article, by telling you all the different ways in which the new government is going to be able to tax you up and down and sideways. And, oh, you're going to like it because, actually, you're represented. Uh, so, so here's, actually, the language of Article 1, Section 8. This is the, the opening sentence. To repeat, the longest section of the longest article. The Congress shall have power to lay and collect taxes, duties, imposts, and excises. Four different ways of saying it. Why? To pay the debts and provide for the common defense and general welfare of the United States. Echoing the preamble. What's it all about? Common defense and general welfare. It's a Washingtonian 
Franklin join or die national security document, national security um, story. Okay, so then we move on to uh, Adams, Jefferson, and Madison in, in Chapter 9. And John Adams is one of those characters who has this, this really strange arc in, the, in, this, in this book. And he, he starts off as this young guy, and then, but, but you're actually not reading what he said as a young guy. You're reading what he wrote as an old guy about what he said when he was a young guy and so forth. Though now he's president, and, uh, and he does something to his vice president that uh, a later president might have wanted to do to his vice president. Yes, he has a falling out with Mike Pence. I mean, with um, uh, Thomas Jefferson. They ran, they, they were right there together in another great John Trumbull painting um, about uh, the, uh, the uh, drafting of the Declaration of Independence. It's in the Capitol Rotunda. It's also in the Yale University Art Gallery. So they're together, you see, um, in July 1776. You know, brothers in arms, so to speak, although neither of them fights the way Hamilton and, and Washington do. Um, um, but, and they're together in France for a while, but they begin to drift apart, and they run against each other. When Washington leaves the scene, as long as Washington wants to be president, he can be unanimously re-elected and re-re-elected. He steps down voluntarily, which is epic. Um, just like he stepped away from military power, which was um, epic. And now Jefferson and Adams are actually the two most senior great statesmen of the revolution. Franklin is dead by, by, by this point. Um, Hamilton is still a whippersnapper. So they run against each other in 1796 when Washington leaves. And in those days, if you come in second for the presidency, you become vice president because they weren't thinking about political parties, quite national political parties. But now Washington, excuse me, but now Adams and Jefferson increasingly are at loggerheads with each other. The sitting vice president of the United States is basically the leader of the opposition. And John Adams signs a law, the Sedition Act, that makes it a crime to criticize John Adams. And who's criticizing John Adams secretly? Thomas Jefferson. Thomas Jefferson is secretly aiding and abetting felonies because it's a felony um, to criticize John Adams. And, and, and Jefferson is doing that with all of his um, allies. Um, and, um, and there's a rematch election, um, and um, Jefferson wins. So here are a few things. Adams is the, the only really early president who doesn't get reelected. Because Washington gets reelected, Jefferson eventually will get reelected. Uh, so will Mad Madison and Monroe. Why doesn't Adams get reelected? Because he made it a crime to criticize the government, and you can't do that. That he's in effect trying to shut down newspaper criticism. He's forgetting where he himself came from because he himself used to write newspaper op-eds against Thomas Hutchinson. You see, but now that you know he's in power, he's way too thin-skinned. And I love this is true, David McCullough. Um, he's my dear friend, and his grandson of the same name, David McCullough, is one of my favorite students, and I've worked with David McCullough, but. Um, uh, and they're both great Yaleys. Um, uh, but David McCullough, the elder, um, his grandson calls him Pops, you know, writes a very flattering book about John Adams, biography of John Adams. But he spends maybe like one page on the Sedition Act. But you, you know, because he just, because David is so nice a person, he can't kind of bring himself to actually tell you nasty things about someone. But you need to understand that John Adams was 
ultimately a constitutional nitwit. Um, because that's why the people voted against him, because he is making it a crime to criticize John Adams, and he's prosecuting people ruthlessly who are basically just writing pamphlets and op-eds saying, you know, gee, John Adams is not so good. You know, um, uh, you know let's go Brandon or whatever. Um, and, and you can't make that a crime, you see. And, and it's Thomas Jefferson who's actually encouraging all of his pals to write these things behind the scenes. Um, and, and he wins. Um, but then there's some... Um, uh, a lot of, 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 sh of el uh, sharp elbows in the tr this transfer of power, um, and um, there's a moment. No, almost no one knows this. They say, well, it's a peaceful transfer of power. John Adams you know, actually yields. Yeah, he does. But what people don't know is that, and I do tell the story, Thomas Jefferson comes this close, an inch away from actually um, mobilizing local militias from Pennsylvania and Virginia to march on the national capital with guns if he doesn't get what he wants. Remember, the election of 1800 went to the House, which is the election that we're talking about. So there was almost an insurrection, and, it, and Jefferson pulled back, and good for him. Um, and um, Adams you know, made it a crime, in effect, for Jefferson and others to criticize him and and. Not so good for Adams, but at the end of the day, Adams relented um, and um, uh, passed power to the person who was his, the, the head of the opposition party, and good for him. And now you understand why in that painting that Nikhil was talking about, which I just showed you, Thomas Jefferson is stepping on John Adams' foot. <laughs> the, the, the famous John Trumbull painting. But of course, another thing happened in the election of 1800 and during that, that very fraught time, and that's discussed in, in the next chapter, which is on Jefferson and John Marshall, where John Marshall himself is up to some shenanigans during the election. John Marshall is Jefferson's second cousin. They have so many things in common. They're Virginians. They were secretaries of state. They're um, very charming and, 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 and good-looking. Um, they um, have strong... Um, uh, alliances um, uh, with Northerners. Um, actually, uh, Marshall ends up marrying someone whose mother initially spurned a marriage proposal from Thomas Jefferson. They're second cousins once removed. Um, so they have so many things coming and they hate each other. Um, and I'm basically more of a Marshall guy than I am a Jefferson person. But, you know, they're all... But, but, and, and Jefferson can be devious... But oh, so can John Marshall. And John Marshall, at a certain moment, is actually plotting to steal the presidency away from, from, from Jefferson in this complicated um, Jefferson-Adams-Burr election of 1800 and the transition. He has this very cutesy argument um, um, that, that, um, that worthy of, of Josh Hawley or Ted Cruz or something about why really he's the guy who should be president um, uh, rather than Jefferson. And where does he make this argument? Of course, in newspapers, how does he make it? Of course, under a pseudonym. These guys actually, you know, are planting anonymous pieces. Publius, you see, um, the federal, the author of the Federalist. These are anonymous newspaper essays, you see. And John Marshall, he, he, um, uh, I give evidence to suggest he's a fellow. Uh, he uses a nom de plume, Horatius, who explains actually 
Um, the person who really should be president um, is the, um, be, uh, if no one gets a proper majority in um, uh, the, uh, the House of Representatives that's supposed to untie the uh, election between Burr and Jefferson because c- for complicated reasons they ended up with the same number of electoral votes. Um, so the House has to pick between them. But if no one has a majority, oh, it should go to the Secretary of State who just happens to be, yes, John Marshall. Or if not that, it should maybe go to the Chief Justice, Who's who happens John to be Marshall. John Marshall. <laughs> yes, you can be Secretary of State and Chief Justice at the same time. And Marshall was for the last month of the Adams administration. So isn't history interesting? <laughs> so we're, we're going to wrap it up, and we're going to skip the chapter on Andy Jackson. Um, just, just because we want to get Except to your Except to mention Jacksonville, Florida. And if you want to ask me, you know, what's so impressive about Jackson, I'll tell you what's impressive and, and what's unimpressive um, about him, just as we've talked about some of the others. Because um, this state and Andy Jackson have a very, very long history together. Um, Andrew Jackson um, is very much associated with, basically, um, the, the history of this state, Florida. But uh, and as we have the book exit the stage so that we can take your questions, um, we have the amazing chapter where the founders themselves exit the stage one at a time. Yes, they're there. Or I, I call in some that, cases, two at a time. Uh, yes, I call that adieu um, in the plural um, as they, um, and each one of them, actually, their death scene is, uh, there's something really interesting, very important if, if you understand it with care. I won't go into all the details, but each one of them dies in a, in a very significant way. I'll just mention one, yes, which Andy referred to, the, the dual death, not D-U-E-L, not Hamilton, but D-U-A-L, the dual death of Adams and Jefferson. They die, of course, very famously, both um, miles apart, on July 4th, 1826, the 50th anniversary of the Declaration of Independence. But here's the thing, and it's so obvious, but it's been hiding in plain sight, but people haven't really noticed it. Just think about what kind of person you must be in order to, you know, to die on the date you want. Adams and Jefferson are living for years just to make it to that day, and then they have to drop dead on that day without hemlock. You know, without choice. What force of will, what kind of person, crazy person, does it, you know, do you have to be? And they're not dying on the, on the birth date of, of, their, of their favorite um, parent or their anniversary date or, or something like that. They're dying on a very public day, a day because they are living their lives in the public and their greatest achievement is actually um, uh, they're, they're working together in the, in the American Revolution um, and, um, and these were extraordinary people. And, and you just see it when you think about it. Who can will his death? John Adams has to you know, make it to that day and then drop dead on that day. And same for Jefferson. And they're not in email communication, yet they both do it on the same day. Wow. Okay. So as you can see, it's quite a ride through the words that made us. Um, and I th- you know, following this at the end of the book is a postscript, which we won't get into right now. But Except it- to say that the, the postscript is all because Andy told me, you know, Andy read every uh, 
paragraph, every ch- every page, every chapter, you know, several times, um, you know, uh, and and I said, okay, if, you know, it's a long book. I said, okay, I'm done. He said, oh no, you're not done. You know, you have to now actually pull it all together and tell us what it means. And Andy, thank you for actually encouraging me to do that because I, uh, I do, t- I do try well, I to... I needed to know what it meant. So. Yeah, I, I do try <laughs> to tell you what it all means in, in the postscript and that's all because of uh, the good Dr. Lipka. Well, thank you, Akil, for this wonderful love letter to America. And, you know, I think that uh, it, it is a patriotic message, but that doesn't make it, you know, pablum or, you know, something that closes its eyes uh, you know, you mentioned earlier that uh, Jefferson was elected because uh, of the Sedition Act, but he was also elected because of slavery. Yes, the three-fifths clause, because he got extra electoral. He wins basically in the South, and Adams wins basically in the North, but because of the three-fifths clause, the South is getting extra electoral votes because of its slaves. You take away the 13 extra electoral votes, Thomas Jefferson is getting, because of the three-fifths clause, John Adams wins that election. More free people voted for John Adams than for Thomas Jefferson. Um, the newspapers in the North say Mr. Jefferson is riding into the executive mansion on the backs of his slaves. So, so it's, a, you know... It, um, and he was I, known as Negro President. The ne- There's actually the, a book uh, with that title. By Gary Wills, who did his PhD um, at Yale, very famously. Um, and, and Gary was kind enough to, to be a blurber of the books. So, um, uh, um, on their deathbeds, both Jefferson, excuse me, both Washington and Franklin um, do anti-slavery things. Um, and Jefferson, not so much. Um, so, um, so, I do try to tell the story of slavery in a pretty big way. The North is getting rid of slavery and the South is doubling down on slavery. And so you can see, even in this book, that on the horizon, there will be problems as, as one they they joined so that they wouldn't die join or die they had to join together but there were fundamentally different visions about slavery otis is criticizing slavery from 1764 on and some in the deep south are doubling down on slavery and that's going to lead to the civil war and andy jackson is a complicated figure he's he's very good when it comes to defending america against its enemies and the battle of new orleans is really you know an extraordinary event and um um and um, his relationship to Indians is complicated. He hates many of the tribes because they ally with um, America's enemies, um, with um, uh, the Brits, but he doesn't hate Native Americans as such. Indeed, I tell a story. He, he actually adopts as his own uh, a, a, a red stick um, uh, war orphan, um, uh, Lincoya, uh, um, uh, red stick creek um, war orphan, uh, Lincoy, and, and raises him as his own. Uh, Lincoya Jackson, and even tries to to see if he can get a West Point appointment for him. So, so it's a complicated story. Um, democracy, yes, oh, but also slavery. So you know, it's it's one thing to close your eyes and write a write a love letter. It's another thing to do it with your eyes wide open. And I think that you know, in this this day and age, we're grateful for that, Akil. So thank you very much for this summary. <laughs> and like. <laughs> It's well worth your while to read it. So I hope you have some questions. Um, If you could ask them with the wireless mic, um, that would be great. 
And you're going to be, and Andy will upload this episode of the podcast a little later uh, today or tomorrow. Yep. So, questions? Um, so, so, I want to you know, fast forward a couple hundred years to today and talk about the, you know, the unite or die, you know, democracy, let everybody vote, um, you know, what I call the hearts and minds. And, you know, with using the lens of history, right, you know, where are we today, you know, with regards to unite or die um, and, you know, the, the controversy, um, you know, in the nation today? So Americans, there have always been divisions in America. The Constitution was adopted through a series of elections in which, in many places, half the people were opposed to the document. Um, uh, but um, they were listened to. They got to make their arguments. Many of them actually um, said uh, at the end, okay, uh, we lost, but um, it was a fair vote, and, um, uh, and wait till next time. And they voted for George Washington. George Washington, think about this, America's Constitution um, is um, uh, adopted in a series of close contests, state by state. There are a lot of people anti-federalists. And yet everyone votes for George Washington, even though everyone knows that he supported the Constitution. So, okay, we lost, but we're going to give the folks who won a chance to, to, um, to, to implement their, their, their vision. And what's the first thing that he does? He says, listen, a lot of people were opposed to this document, we should listen to them. They want a Bill of Rights, let's give it to them, okay? Um, so he actually, North Carolina hasn't said yes yet. Um, Rhode Island hasn't said yes yet. Geostrategically, those are gaping holes because um, the, the snake actually has to be uh, united, join or die. So people voted to repeat. People voted against the document, but no one died politically that year. Um, they, 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 they argued, they debated, but they didn't actually um, war against each other, and the losers acquiesced, and the winners tried to listen to what the losers said. That's interesting. If you ask me what the real division is, here's what Beard says. Beard and Beardians, um, Howard Zinn and others say, oh, it's the rich against the poor, and the rich won. The rich jammed it down the poor. I don't think that at all. Um, because yet it's true that... George Washington's pretty well off. In fact, he's a very wealthy man, you know, a real estate speculator, you know. Um, uh, go figure. Um, um, but um, uh, a, a businessman of a certain sort. Um, um, but uh, he's wealthy, but um, Elbridge Gerry, who opposes the document, is also very wealthy. Um, George Mason, who opposes the document, is very wealthy. Uh, some of the Lees in Virginia are very wealthy. Um, and there are a lot of um, ordinary uh, uh, people in um, uh, sailors and, and, and um, uh, uh, blacksmiths and others in New York City who were very much for the document. So I don't think it's rich versus poor. I think here are the, uh, the divisions at the time of the Constitution. The closer you are to the coast, the more you're for the document. Um, the... Um, the uh, closer you were to the fighting end of the American Revolution, the more you're for the Constitution because you know that there's a national security problem. The younger you are, in general, the more you're for the Constitution because it's a new idea and you're willing to take a chance. 
Um, uh, stepping back, the big divisions in America have never been, except for just a couple of issues at Philadelphia itself about the composition of the Senate. But in general, in the history of America, the divisions are not big state against small state. They've never been that. Here's how America divides, always has. Basically, um, coasts against the um, uh, heartland, cities against rural areas, and north against south. Those are the three divisions in America. They remain the three divisions in, in America today. Um, you earlier um, mentioned uh, not just America, but the world. Here are two points. When the Constitution is adopted, there's almost no democracy in the world. Britain has a little bit, Swiss have a little bit, everyone else is basically, uh, um, the, the world is, is run by kings, emperors, czars, sultans, mughalors, tribal chieftains, thugs. And then we, the people of the United States, did in actual fact ordain and establish a constitution with peaceful votes up and down a continent, and no one dies politically, and epic free speech. Massive participation. More people got to vote on this than ever voted before in anything in human history. And the world has had a few democracies. Um, um, ancient Athens um, uh, and the Clystenic Constitution, Periclean Athens, pre-imperial Rome. But the world, even the democracy, has never put their constitutions to a vote. We Americans did that first, so it's, it's epic. And today... Half the world is democratic by population landmass. So that's pretty amazing. I talked about my, my dad. Today is his 93rd birthday. Happy birthday, dad. And, um, and India is a billion people with a written constitution. Today, when they're born, they don't have um, f f uh, democracy. The Brits are telling them what to do. Today, a written constitution, relatively free and fair elections. They're not perfect, but neither are ours. Um, uh, 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 judges enforcing rights, religious toleration, uh, um, plus or minus, um, political parties, different ones alternating in power. Wow. Okay, so that's an entire subcontinent, a billion people, India. That's Central Europe. That's, that, that's um, even um, uh, Eastern Europe in, in, um, in some places, but it's, it's Germany. It's, it's Fran France is now a great republic. It, it was an absolutist uh, um, monarchy at the time of the Constitution. You see, okay, uh, Japan. So the American constitutional model has actually swept the planet in a certain way. Um, but he, so, wow. And we have problems in America and elsewhere, but here's our biggest challenge and opportunity. We're really the only democratic nation in the world. So we were one of the first. There were the Swiss and the, and, and the Brits, but um, the, the, even the Brits, they have a hereditary house of lords and a hereditary monarch that no one voted for. So, um, and, and very few people lived in Switzerland. They were more basically sheep than they were human beings. And so, so, um, um, uh, so, um, so, but now democracy, half the planet um, is democratic on an American constitutional model. But here's the difference. Almost none of the other great democracies in the world are, are genuinely multicultural. Um, there are very few democracies in the world where the grandchildren and the great-grandchildren of all the other peoples in the world try to work together. You know, that, that, that's not Norway. That's not France, truthfully. That's not Germany. It, India is not a, an immigrant society, you see. So that creates some real challenges for us. Um, because here's the things that we don't have in common. We don't have race in common. Some people's forebears came with bullwhips, and others, people's forebears in Florida and elsewhere, came in chains. You know, some came yesterday, and some, you know, they're their ancestors, and some came 300 years ago. So we, we don't have um, race in common. We don't have religion in common. Um, we don't even have language in common in Florida or, or elsewhere. Um, so what, what do we have in common? 
we have our history. We have our constitution. We have a shared national narrative. You know, we have certain propositions that this country is dedicated to. So, point one, you know, if we're going to unite, because we have to unite or die, you know, we have to unite around something, and it can't be race, and it can't be religion. It has to be our shared constitutional narrative. So that means, actually, we have to know the story. I have to tell it. I have to tell it straight, not as a Democrat or as a Republican, as a liberal or as a conservative, but as an historian. This is actually the story. You need to know the story. All Americans do. They need to know their presence. They need to know the Constitution. They need to, to know, you know what happened and when we made mistakes and why. And, and, uh, because we didn't get rid of slavery initially, and, we're gonna, and we have to fight a civil war about that. So, so that's the challenge, you see, because we're a much more diverse democracy than almost any other. Um, in the world. The book is dedicated to several people, and I dedicate to these several people in part because they embody the diversity of America. One, Andy already mentioned, Lin-Manuel Miranda. You know, he, he, this is a kind of immigrant story. Um, um, I happen to, my, my parents are Hindu. I, I happen to be a Christian, a Protestant. Um, Lynn Miranda was, I think, born Catholic. Another a dedicatee, Ron Chernow, a Yaley, wrote the Hamilton biography. He happens to be Jewish, as does Andy. Uh, Kaiser Khan is a dedicatee. He happens to be Muslim. Neil Katyal, a dedicatee, happens to be Hindu. This is an only in America um, a, a dedication. Lynn Manuel Miranda, oh, his spouse, Vanessa Nadal, um, um, uh, Ron Chernow, Kaiser Khan, and Neil Kumar Katyal. Um, so that's how real our challenge and our opportunity is we could be truly a united nation, show the rest of the world that, that actually. People whose forebears profess very different religions, spoke very different languages, have very different skin colors, can actually work together because they actually have a shared set of institutions, a shared history, a shared commitment. The, they're my founding fathers, and, and, and my ancestors weren't here at the time. But I can affiliate with them, and so can you if you choose. So did Lincoln. Lincoln understood that. If you read his Lyceum speech, which is one of his early speeches, he talks about... Uh, about how we're no longer the revolutionary generation, so we don't have that to unite us anymore. Um, so what do we have to unite us? One thing that he worries about is what he calls the towering genius, which by which he means Andrew Jackson in part, but, you know, a, a demagogue. That, uh, the towering and, stable genius. No, no, no. I'm, I'm, and I'm, instead, I'm, he, he, okay. he talks about what we have to unite behind is the law. And by that, he means the Constitution, and for him also the Declaration of Independence. Um, so he understood that. Um, and this is, and he believes in union, join or die, and he's a person of law. He's a deep, deep believer in the Constitution. Questions? So I want to thank you in uh, your whole presentation, but the part that I uh, was most struck by was the part about the Sedition Act, and, and I wanted to say you reminded me, but I, you know, I don't remember anything, so... We never knew it, but that you, you reminded me of that and <clears throat> the importance of uh, upholding that principle, right? Which is that, of course, we have to be free to um, ridicule, criticize, yes, um, and, and dissent, yes, right? even all the way to the highest levels of government. Yes. And that is so foundational and so important to our our country and our and our survival. And I, somewhere along the line, it seems to me that a, a lot of people in the country got comfortable with allowing that to erode. And I don't know where, when that happened. Like, you actually have the ACLU now, for example, coming out in favor of 
know, speech codes, hate speech, uh, censoring people, canceling people. Um, we it, we kind of I th- somewhere and I, to me, I think it has something to do with like sort of the Saul Alinsky prong of progressivism, where you know uh, it's us against them, and so if it's good for our side, if it's good for progressivism or whatever you want to call it, that's more important than protecting absolute free speech. So since Andy um, mentioned this is a, a it's a free weekly podcast called America's Constitution. Uh, sometimes we have guests on our podcast. We've had amazing guests, including the, the great American, great Yaley, Bob Woodward. And we ha- I mentioned Neil Katyal, former acting solicitor general of the United States. He came um, and did a couple of episodes. And, and you can binge listen. You can go back and listen to all the others. I recommend that you listen in particular to a great, a, a pair of a two different episodes that we had with great scholars of um, free speech. Maybe actually three. Three. One, we had Nadine Strassen, the f- uh, president of the uh, ACLU for 20 years, who talked about how important it is to protect this dissenting tradition. Um, so I think you might find that episode interesting. Um, another, we did an, uh, an episode with Floyd Abrams, who is a, a, a very prominent um, lawyer, um, has argued many f- important free speech cases before the Supreme Court. Floyd and I both agreed... Um, that Citizens United, for example, was rightly decided. I'm um, a, a Democrat. Um, I, Floyd, I suspect, is as well. Um, yet we think the Republican justices on the on the court largely got that right. So, it, um, um, uh, and and assaults from free speech have come from the hard left, but oh, they've come from the hard right as well. You see, um, there was a third episode. We had Alan Dershowitz on, um, and he, I think, um, uh, talked a little bit about um, uh, some of his ideas about um, uh, uh, free speech. So so those episodes in particular might be of interest to you. Andy, am I forgetting any of the others? Um, well, you, you might, I, I might say that you are, in the sense that we had an episode on Yale's constitution that I mentioned earlier, and one has to wonder about Yale's commitment to, to free speech oh, in yes. a number of ways. The, the recent unpleasantness. Well, I'm, you know, my personal experience uh, was that I was a, a candidate for the Yale Corporation via petition. I was attempting to get petition signatures. Um, and so I formed a you know, campaign organization and so forth. And on the day that I was supposed to be allowed to begin collecting signatures, which is commencement under the rules, the uh, Yale Corporation abolished petition candidates um, going forward. And this leaves us only with candidates that are uh, nominated by a committee of the uh, Alumni Association, uh, which, and that committee contains members of Yale's administration and even a trustee, um, as well as a person who isn't even a Yale alum. But more to the point, those candidates are not permitted to campaign. They're not permitted to give interviews. They're not permitted to have any statements of positions on anything. Um, the only thing that you know about them is their career history. Um, so, you know, it's, uh, I, I wonder about, so anyway, this is something that we discussed uh, at length with uh, professor, another great Sterling professor, Nicholas Christakis, who yes. came on as, a, as our guest for, the, for that episode. We bring in all sorts of people. Sometimes they're from the right of the political spectrum. Ed Whalen, some recently, National Review Online um, uh, 
um, legal commentator, and um, we brought in Linda Greenhouse, uh, left of center. That was just back-to-back episodes. So, um, and we're polite to everyone, uh, but we push back um, uh, sometimes, and and uh, we we don't always agree with them, and and we have good conversations in the spirit of the constitutional uh, uh, system that I'm uh, trying to you know describe in this book. And I, one of my proudest moments is when I heard Alan Dershowitz utter two words to me that he has never before in his life said, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> I can't resist. Could you speak to Trump and the Constitution? Uh, so I um, have been a fierce critic of Donald Trump uh, forever. Um, and you could read what I wrote um, about him on Halloween 2016, it appeared in Slate, um, uh, uh, and that doesn't mean that everyone who voted for him is my enemy. Um, tomorrow I'm doing um, some uh, events um, uh, with my friends at the Four Arts in uh, uh, Palm Beach, and, and I suspect um, most of them voted differently from how I did on election day. Um, I think you heard that uh, I publicly testified on behalf of, of uh, uh, Brett Kavanaugh. Um, this was before uh, there were various issues about, about um, uh, things that may or may not have happened uh, many, many years ago uh, that I wasn't uh, um, a witness to. But, but um, um, I personally think that Donald Trump um, does not understand the Constitution as I do, or system of dissent and discourse. So, so I've always been um, a, a huge critic um, of the president and a huge admirer of many of the people of, of, of President Donald Trump. Huge admirer of many of the people of, of many people who who supported him. So, um, that's a hard thing to do to think that you know your friends are completely wrong about something that you think is very important, and yet um, you have to keep lines of communication open. You have to try to see what the world looks like to them, and I think I understand several reasons why they, they believe the way they do. Um, so, um, uh, but, but if you want to see what I think about Donald Trump, you should read uh, a Slate piece that I wrote that was published on Halloween, October 31st, 2016. We did have a, an episode of the podcast when we talked about the impeachment um, and some of the questions that we we had a, a guest, Philip Baba, right. great and professor. In fact, our, and our first three episodes are, in fact, about this, um, especially episode three. So you could listen to that one as well. But I, I think well, the point I was going to make there is that when we discussed impeachment, um, Akil's made the point that, it, that impeachment can, can cast a fairly wide net in terms of the behavior of the president. And we uh, actually jointly authored a, an op-ed, the New York Daily News, about the impeachment trial, wherein we, 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 want, we suggested that the ex-presidents be called as expert witnesses to testify on what is reasonable behavior on the part of a president and what would be considered presidential malpractice. And, and not just the Democrat. being a physician, you know, right. so. And not just the Democratic ex-presidents, not just, you know, Bill Clinton or Barack Obama, but, but for example, um, uh, George W. Bush. And since um, uh, I, I um, uh, uh, 
mentioned him. Um, uh, his favorite speechwriter, who helped him write the book uh, Decision Points, Chris Michelle, was was my um, student and 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 head TA. And um, so again, um, I'm personally. I've been very, very critical of Donald Trump forever, um, and I'm very, very close to many people who are his strong supporters. Thank you, and thank you for your time. Great speech. Um, a couple, a two-part question. Do you think there has been, or there may be in the future, irreversible damage or irreparable damage to a constitution? Yes. And if so, what areas would be the key areas that you would be concerned about that may undermine the concept? The most important thing is we have to keep the system going. That means that actually um, when, the, when people vote, the votes have to be properly counted and the verdict of the elections have to be respected. So voting is key, peaceful transitions of power is key, are key, and um, robust, uninhibited, wide-open free speech. The, um, and, and then if my side wins, great. If your side wins, okay, um, and then we'll, we'll do it again in, in two years and four years and six years. And so that's the most important thing, that the system has to keep going. And that requires people who lose today to be willing to actually accept that outcome and move forward. So I think we're probably going to wrap up the questions, but I just want to call attention to something that Akil just said. It has to do with having continuity of government and having elections that, that uh, follow the Constitution and make sense and so forth. But in order to understand his argument, you need to understand what he said earlier about state constitutions preceding the federal Constitution. So in, this, in you know, the history here... Um, lies a lot of the principles that can allow you to understand this morass of legal and, and cultural arguments that we're surrounded by. Yeah, let me just elaborate just for one minute on what Andy just said. The Florida Supreme Court, way back when, 21 years ago, was relying on the Florida State Constitution. Uh, and I and my brother Vikamar in this forthcoming piece explain why that was actually valid because state constitutions are really important. Actually, they, uh, they pre-existed the federal constitution. State constitutions are superior to state legislatures. Um, and state courts have um, valid roles to interpret state constitutions even against state legislatures. And you might not... There was um, judicial review um, of at the state level, state courts invalidating state statutes in the name of state constitutions before the Philadelphia Convention, before the Federalist Number 78, which talks about judicial review, before Marbury versus Madison, which is about um, the uh, federal judicial review under the federal constitution. And you won't understand any of that unless you know history. Um, and, and chapter th four, for example, is all about just how important state constitutions actually are in the system. That's what the American Revolution was actually really most of all about in its early years. And yes, stuff that happened in 1776, even before the Constitution is relevant today on an issue like how to think about Bush versus Gore, which my friend Justice Alito is actually trying to um, uh, bring back to life, and um, which I think um, was completely wrongly decided. 
said so in an important in a, in a lecture that I gave at the University of Florida, the Dunwoody Lecture here in this state um, a decade ago, and now I'm I'm saying it again. So Andy's right. This is a history book. I hope I, there, you, you, you've heard that there are a lot of stories in it and, and, and characters, but it's also about deep ideas, legal principles, constitutional principles that are you know, absolutely relevant today, ripped from the headlines. So thank you very much to the, the uh, Yale Club of the Palm Beaches and to our hosts here and to my friend, Akil, and America's friend. Thank you. Thank you.